Hello, and welcome back to the future of figure skating. My name is Anna Keller, and my guest today is Rob Kohler. In many previous episodes, my guests have brought up how athletes' needs should be centered in sports and how far we are from prioritizing the well-being of skaters. What would it take to increase the power of athletes to influence the decisions that govern their sports? Where else in the Olympic movement is progress being made? What can we learn from sports where players' unions and other collective bargaining is common? To answer some of those questions, I turn to Rob Kohler, the Director General of Global Athlete, an organization that helps athletes to organize and speak out on the issues they care about. Rob was previously the Deputy Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agency, the most senior of many positions he held at WADA between 2002 and 2018. He was also Vice Chair of the WADA Independent Observer Team at the Sochi Olympics. Rob is based in Montreal, Canada, and I am so glad that he was able to join us for this important conversation. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to get to talk to you today. Starting off, could you tell us a little bit about your organization, Global Athlete, and what it does? Yeah, Global Athlete was, um, well, first of all, it was an organization that I thought I'd never be running. In my previous position, I worked for the World Anti-Doping Agency. And in that role, I was always a strong advocate for athletes. So much so when even the executive committee of WADA or the management of WADA were making decisions the athletes weren't happy with, I encouraged them to speak up and to use a voice and to, if we weren't listening, then go public with it. Not always a popular approach, but, you know, sport and anti-doping is all about athletes. They have the most to gain, the most to lose. And when I left the, the World Anti-Doping Agency, um, I was approached to see if I'd be interested by athletes and by a few, um, by Fair Sport, to see if I'd be interested in setting up an organization that was athlete-run and athlete-led. And I said, yes, I could be interested, but I have three conditions. One was funding couldn't be attached to decision-making. And the reason I said that was from my experience working in international sport is a lot of times when money was driving uh, the engagement of athletes, they were being forced down paths where they necessarily didn't want to go, but were afraid of losing funding. So they end up supporting organizations' mandates versus the athlete mandates. The second was I wanted to meet with the professional leagues, the unions and the leagues to talk about whether there was space in this area for another group. And the third, which I think was the most important, was bringing athletes from around the world uh, for a two-day brainstorming session, and which we did. And the first question was, what is and what could be established and what would it look like? How would it act? And from that two-day brainstorming session, it was agreed that an organization like this was needed. Uh, we came up with a strategy and the underpin values is it has to be grassroots athlete driven and we need to be the voice and, and advocate and work with athletes and they should drive everything we do so it was a very it was a movement that was built by athletes and developed by athletes and i think to this day it's still everything we do is driven by athlete opinion um, athlete positions and that's kind of where we we started one month into when we launched, we had an email from Irish karate um, athletes, Irish athletes in, in Ireland competed in the sport of karate, indicating that we were, they were being blocked out from sport because the president of Irish karate was given a vote of non-confidence and was kicked out of the federation. And instead of leaving, he decided to set up his own executive committee and told the athletes, if you didn't support me, I would block your entry to the European Championships, which was a qualifier for Tokyo. 
they had tried to reach out to the IOC, to World Karate, to the National Olympic Committee of Ireland and had no success. So they reached out to us and we strategized with them, developed statements, went public. And within 24 hours of us going public and doing some behind the scenes work, the World Karate Federation indicated and reversed the decision and said, yes, you can come to the European Championship. That was the first real win we had on our belt when we were very green, very new, but stuck to everything that we did, everything that we wrote, every strategy we developed was signed off and agreed by the athletes and they have the final say. That's kind of the birth of Global Athlete and that's kind of the first win we really had for representing athletes. That's great. And so it's grown from being more than just focusing around anti-doping issues, but what are some of the other areas that athletes' voices are, you know, are needed to be heard in these systems? Yeah, I mean, I think I look back at, and this is the hard part, is a lot of people get frustrated when you're in this space because it's, it's very difficult. A sport is resistant to change. They don't want to change and they like it the way it is and want to maintain the 20-year or 40-year history and, and keep it the same way. But if I look back, you know, some of the things we've been involved with that athletes have pushed for, Rule 40, which is a rule that has limited Olympic and Paralympic athletes, the ability to promote their likeness, uh, to own their likeness, to thank sponsors. And Athletes Germany, which is an independent athlete group in Germany, actually took the IOC to court and, and won a ruling where athletes should be able to help with their likeness and thank sponsors and potentially do commercials during the games where before they were totally blocked out. And we worked with various athlete groups to integrate, to help them force and push change within their National Olympic Committees. The other, I think one of the big things was Rule 50. It's hard to believe three, four years ago, an athlete couldn't take a media conference to talk about social racial justice couldn't talk about anything they wanted to believe in, whether it was politically, as long as it was in line with the UN Charter of Human Rights. Uh, they were told if they did that, they would be banned from the games or they'd have their medals removed. So we worked with athletes from all around the world, um, with human rights experts, and eventually pushed the IOC to relax that rule. And now athletes can stand up and, and speak about social and racial justice. I mean. We saw handball players in Tokyo wearing rainbow bands to support gay and lesbian rights. So these are the things where athletes believe in. Surely they should be able to speak out and be agents of change when they have that platform. IOC talks about being an inclusive organization. And if you're not going to allow athletes to talk about inclusion and to talk about equal rights, then you're limiting that discussion. So we were pretty proud to see that uh, relaxed. And, you know, we saw athletes take podiums that were never suspended. I think that advocacy work was was pretty pretty well taken and, and we were pretty successful with that. Postponement of the Olympic Games prior to Tokyo. The IOC was asking for four weeks before they made a decision telling athletes to continue to train. Meanwhile, all their communities were being locked down and told they you need to stay at home. And we saw athletes jumping fences, uh, getting into facilities and breaking laws. And athletes were fed up and an athlete movement was led and pushed the IOC to make the decision within a week of, of statements being made. Allowing women to bring breastfeeding babies to Tokyo, uh, that was prohibited. We end up working with 12 women-led breastfeeding organizations in the U.S. to go out with a statement uh, and a full-page ad in the New York Times to call out how ridiculous this was. You're separating a, a young mother from her, her newborn 
and it was totally against every right uh, a mother should have. Um, the day before it was going to be published, the IOC changed their decision, and we were advocating with the athletes for it. And we look at the issues related to Russia. The Ukrainian athletes reached out to us just moving into the Beijing Paralympic Games and indicating that how can Russia and Belarus be competing at these games when they just invaded a peaceful country? Worked with them, worked with the Ukrainians, and end up with hundreds and hundreds of Olympians and Paralympians signing a letter to the International Paralympic Committee. And on the eve of the Olympic Games, Paralympic Games, the Russian and Belarus athletes were removed from competition. I could go on. I mean, there's, there's so many different uh, things that we have done that athletes have asked us to help with and to work with them that has led to success. And, and the most recent, I think, which we're still working on is the abuse crisis happening in sport in Canada uh, across all sports, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional abuse and pushing the government to hold an inquiry. You know, we were, we have been successful with, again, it's not just us, it's, it's an army of athletes and, and advocates pushing for change to have a committee hearing in status of women in Canada, another committee hearing on the Heritage Committee for government officials to bring in uh, advocates, to bring in survivors, to share their lived experience and to hopefully come up with a solution that can enhance and improve safer sport in Canada and more importantly, globally. Because we have issues from everywhere that athletes come up and, and reach out to us where there's been abuse and there's nowhere to turn. So I think that's where we want to see advocacy move in the future too. Um, sport is supposed to be a safe place, it's supposed to be a, uh, an inclusive place, uh, but often finds we find we find it's not being that. So that's kind of where we're pushing for change. Yeah, and I can really see how athlete-driven those campaigns are because they're covering so many different spaces and sports and issues that as things come up, there are the need to respond to what the emerging situation of the moment is. If you wouldn't mind giving a little bit of an overview of how we should think about sport organizations through the Olympic system and then through professional leagues outside of the Olympic system. I know that there are so many acronyms and it can be quite confusing to think about who's operating at what level, but maybe to be able to set a, a bit of a grounding for the rest of our conversation, um, if you wouldn't mind giving a little bit of an orientation there. Yeah, I mean, so under the current system, you have, you know, we often joke, it's the mothership. It's the International Olympic Committee who really drives international sport when it comes to quote-unquote, Olympic and Paralympic sport. They have links directly with the international federations who have responsibility over whether it's world aquatics, world athletics, so each individual sport, figure skating. Uh, and then underneath that, of course, you have national sport organizations that respond to the international federations. And then you have national Olympic committees who basically field teams. So they are I often joke that a lot of National Olympic Committees are glorified travel agencies because they provide kit and health and well-being support during the games, uh, but they don't produce athletes. That would be under the national level and then international level uh, hosts competitions for them. And that kind of is replicated in the Paralympic system as well. And one of the things we have done in the past is we did a study looking at the Olympic movement and how that compares to the professional sports. And the Olympic movement claims, well, they are actually a non-for-profit, 
And we did a comparison of what other non-for-profits were out there, such as the YMCA, the YWCA, United Way, and quickly realized that the IOC, because they get all their money from broadcasting rights and TV rights and sponsors, they replicate more of a professional sport league. And that's how professional sports run. I mean, they make all their money off of broadcasting and sponsors. YMCA, United Way, who are non-profits, make money off of donations and donors that support them. So mm -hmm. we think with a study that we showed is, is they're really looking like a professional sport organization, but they don't act like one mm -hmm. because they don't provide the athletes ability to collectively bargain, um, to have a say in any of the rules. They're not compensated. So all of the things that sport should be, the IOC is not doing that. And they're bringing in, I think last year was $1.7 billion per year in revenues that are distributed to national Olympic committees, international federations, museums, Olympic solidarity, continental associations, broadcasting organizations. And then if you go all the way down to the bottom, there's through grants, there's about 4% that goes to athletes. And when it comes to actual money and support, it's closer to 0.05%. So compensation is not there. And the, one of the things that we want to push forward for is, is this whole idea of collective bargaining. And the reason I say that is all the things we talked about earlier, when it comes to abuse in sport, when it comes to rules being established that are potentially not safe for sport, on training, on age limits, all the things we look at, all we have to do is look at the Valieva case, when we had a young child competing and the way she was being treated, and now the ISU has obviously increase the age. I'm not sure that's going to solve the problem. But all these decisions are being made by sport leaders without the involvement of athletes. And who knows sport better that lives it every day that potentially could grow it, could make it safer and stronger, are the athletes. And that power imbalance, athletes are afraid, they don't want to speak up, is a major issue. And on top of that, collective bargaining also does another thing. It demands transparency. And within the Olympic sport, we see very little transparency in terms of finances, very little transparency when they do commissions or reports or investigations. That's all lacking. And if athletes had representation, yeah. they would be better placed where they're not putting themselves out there all the time, but they have people representing them to shield them and to protect them moving forward. And that's where we think it shouldn't be a threat to the International Olympic Committee. It should be an opportunity because if we look at all professional sports that embrace collective bargaining, they have grown exponentially in terms of revenues, in terms of safety. While not perfect, it's much better than what we're seeing within the Olympic movement now where current athlete committees are controlled and run by the, the organizations they represent. Right. I mean, seeing the difference, and I had looked at that report that you referenced and just the dramatic difference between, you know, 4% of funding going to athletes in the Olympic system versus 60 to 70% in the large professional leagues. That is such a dramatic difference. And especially knowing the costs that it takes to train for so many of these sports. And that's something that comes up a lot in figure skating that even putting aside the money that you, you know, that you might need to live or to save for the future or any of those things, just the purely the cost to train is so often borne directly by the athletes and the compensation, if there is any, and I know this varies widely country to country, how 
how much like National Olympic committees or the national governing bodies are involved in funding the athletes, but there are many places where they don't get any funding through those sources at all. So thinking about that and then seeing the difference between that and places where there are collective bargaining, I guess part of what I'm curious about is, are there examples of collective bargaining players associations and that kind of thing happening within either across, you know, internationally, um, not just within a league that's within a country, but looking at international situations and also does it happen in individual sports? Because I think that's another area where I try to picture how it translates from leagues of professional teams into a sport that is mainly individual. Yeah, I mean, there's no question your point is very valid that it's easier to collectively bring teams together than individuals. There are examples of collective approaches and team sport, one, for example, being under the auspices of world players where you have FIFPRO, which is the the union actually for football slash soccer players um, internationally that represent and, and are voices for those athletes. You have the same in rugby, you have the same in, in similar sports that are international team sports. We had we started to have a breakthrough a little bit and when we talk about individual sports. Um, Global Athlete helped uh, establish and, and launch two different organizations when we look at individual sports. One was the Athletics Association which was led by Christian Taylor and Emma Colburn. And they collectively got together with track and field athletes, both sprint and long distance and field athletes, and established an organization. And the reason they did that to start was the Diamond Leagues, which is where all athletics athletes make the majority amount of money in the Diamond League European tour, basically. And they unilaterally, the league unilaterally said, we're taking away all throwing events because it's too much time, media, we don't have the, the much TV space. So they were basically taking the opportunity for this select group, removing them from an opportunity to earn money. So the Athletics Association collectively got together, the sprinters, the long distance runners, uh, the high jumpers, all united to support, hold on here. We need to support our brothers and sisters in that sport and in, in that, in that discipline and potentially not show up to events if we have to. And they were successful. The Diamond League reversed their decision and brought back the throwing events and worked with the athletes on how to make it viable and to make it fit within a, a sellable, marketable product. So they were successful there. We also worked with swimmers through the International Swimming Alliance to establish a, a collective. Again, it's, it's an organization that is, is started, it slowed down, it started again. But it, it just shows you that there is an appetite out there where athletes want to be independent of the sporting organizations and start representing themselves as a collective without having to be tied with a national sport or an international sport organization. Case in point, in, in Germany, the, we have an organization called Athletes Germany, who is independent of everyone and represents athletes in that country. So the movement is there. There's, there's over 100 unionized athlete groups across the world that are fighting for athletes. Um, and, and we see it at the NCAA where now they're starting to get their likeness and, and being able to be paid, which in the past they won't be able to. So I think there's, I think everybody, including the IOC, sees this movement and, and the change that's potentially coming. And that's where we would hope one day they would embrace it as opposed to rejecting it 
because what's happening and all the things I mentioned earlier, the changes that we've moved forward with were not collaborative changes. They were forced changes. So we publicly embarrassed, we had athletes speak up the top of their lungs, and it was a forced change that IOC or, or Ireland or World Karate or any federation had to make, and that hurts the brand. And we'd rather see a collaborative approach to say, how can we make this work together for the better of everyone, for safer sport, I talked about more inclusive sport, and to have a lot, of, lot more transparency that's not there today. And I think if you get that, and, and it's, I said earlier, it's proven by professional sport. It's going to grow the brand. It's going to grow the movement. It's not going to hurt it. And I hope one day we get a, a strong leader that has the background in unions or, or understands the big picture and, and embraces that because force change continues to erode the brand. And when the brand erodes, the athlete's importance starts to erode. So it's a big ecosystem that just falls together. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about that sort of the public appearance piece of all of this. I think often it can seem like all of the decisions that get made in sport are made in closed rooms by insiders. And I mean, I think that often is the case, but then trying to think what does um, public pressure, the media and the role even of spectators in this kind of thing could be. With figure skating, I think we often see this sense of the decisions are made through the ISU, made by the national federations, and that there is such a pressure to maintain the status quo and that nobody wants to be too critical because the idea that being critical would hurt the sport, whereas I think we will see examples, and this has been interesting looking at that some of the discussion recently about U.S. figure skating versus what happened with U.S. gymnastics, and it would be much better to proactively make changes than be forced to by an incredibly public scandal. I mean, obviously, the, the real problem is the abuse, not the scandal, but the idea that somehow by trying to keep everything quiet, you'll be better off in the long term. We have such clear examples to, to the opposite from that as well. Yeah, and I, I, I'd love, I can't share the, the details of the story, but when you look at ISU, okay, or you look at skating, athletes had a grievance and they were right in their grievance and we wanted to work with them and stand up for them. And the response was, we're in a judging sport. And if we start speaking up and we start getting loud, that we're, that's going to affect us because that's what happens in our sport. If you're a troublemaker, you will find your scores being not what they should be, or you will find access being limited, which is telling in itself. And uh, it, it's not limited to skating, it's limited to other sports, but we have dealt directly with international skaters that have had issues and have backed down because it's just the risk reward for them wasn't there. And, and that's sad, it's depressing, um, and that's why if these athletes didn't have to stand up for themselves and they had a collective person or a professional organization standing up for them and saying, no, we're not accepting the way you're moving forward. And as a result, there'll be consequences, um, whether that's we're not showing up or we're just going to start raising our voice even louder and exposing the system. So I think, you know, judging sport plays a significant role in athletes being afraid to speak up and that's taught at a very young age too. And that's where, when we look at what we're doing in Canada, 
The grassroots programs are so important because the grooming starts at that age, that you listen, you obey, and you do everything you're told to do. And not only for parents, not only for athletes, but parents as well. So now everyone's afraid to speak up because they don't want someone, they don't want their child to be not selected. They don't want to be pushed aside. This whole culture of silence that becomes normalized mm -hmm. and having to accept everything that's in the sport is, and I go back to the power imbalances, it's, it's hurting sport quite a bit. And it's hurting athletes. And a lot of time, athletes are, a lot of athletes we've spoken to are more damaged coming out of sport than they were getting going into sport. And that's telling as well. And we've seen more people speaking out after they've retired than in the past. And I think some of that comes from a generation that has been supporting each other in doing that, but also just that there's maybe fewer opportunities directly connected to the sport to go into becoming commentator, to go, you know, be, go on to professional tours. And so it's, sometimes it seems like maybe there's less to lose from those folks who are speaking out than there may have been in the past. But it is very notable that it is the people who are out of competition who have been raising their voices. And it, we haven't really seen it's very rare for anyone to say anything even mildly critical of the rules of governing bodies of anything while they're competing. It's that fear. Yeah. Most of the athlete advocates or athletes that speak up are mid to end of career or out of career where they've experienced whatever they've experienced and have said, okay, I've got a few years left. I want to force change to make sport better than I found it, to leave it in a better place than I found it. And even when they're out reflecting on, my goodness, I do never want to see a child go through what I went through. And there's that guilt that, that potentially comes through, or there's just that pure desire to say, I want to see sport in a better place. And that's what we kind of, when we look at athlete advocacy, one of the things that we had never do is we never push people to do anything they're not ready to do. And we don't chase issues. We wait for issues to come for us or athletes to come to us. Obviously, if we see something major happening, we will reach out and see if they want assistance. But I would say that's probably a 5%. The rest is athletes coming to us and, and looking for help and looking for assistance. Uh, you just look at, in Canada, all the figure skaters, the, an organization was established, Figure Skating for Change. And the athletes that have been silent because they don't want to come forward, and that's okay, but at least they're getting behind an organization to push for change in Canada. And that's the whole idea of the collective. In Canada, there's over 600 gymnasts that have come forward with lived experience of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Of those 600 plus, only five people or six people, or maybe 10, have come forward and shared their lived experience. That's okay. Not everybody is positioned. Not everyone is mentally ready to do these things. I know some people don't want to relive the trauma. So we never push advocacy. You have to be ready for it and you have to be willing to do it. And if you're supported, it makes it a lot easier. We're, you know, the whole idea of we are, the saying is divided, we fail, um, together we're stronger, it is kind of the way athlete advocacy is successful when you have people working together. Yeah, absolutely. Since we're talking about what's going on in Canada, could you tell me a little bit more about how this effort came about and what the goals are and sort of where you are in that process? 
Yeah, we kind of got thrown into it a little bit, to be honest. Um, in March last year, 2022, we were approached by Canadian bobsleigh and skeleton athletes who were had grievances related to the president, the way athletes were being treated. There was lived experiences of abuse, of racism. Athletes were, were fed up. So they asked, they approached Global Athlete and said, can you help us elevate our voice? Can you help us do position, uh, stand on a position? And, and we said, yes, we'll help you. And that was you know, a, a wonderful exercise. And again, we helped draft things. But this is the cool part, is we, we've helped draft things. And I'd say we've got a pretty good writing team um, that we work with. I've got a fantastic writer that two actually are amazing. And we have a meeting with the athletes, we draft something and we give it back to them. And I'm telling you, almost every time we get it back from it, it's, it's even better because they put their hands on it, they put their thoughts, they put their hearts into it, and it becomes a, a stronger statement um, and a stronger position that's, it's true, it's, it's natural and it's honest. And I think that's what pushes the change and following the, the bobsleigh skeleton athletes, we had the gymnasts come forward asking for assistance and help. We did, and that the Gymnastics for Change Canada has been a, a force to be reckoned with since that day. On the first start statement was on March 28th. Um, I remember that because it was my birthday that day. We released it, and then we had boxers come forward that wanted to to work with us. We had fencers, we had figure skaters, we had individual athletes from different sports coming forward. So it was really a momentum of a collaborative athletes that wanted to see change in sport in Canada, recognizing that the playing field wasn't level. There was a, a lack of transparency. There was federations not dealing with abuse and a lot of times covering it up or delaying decisions. If someone was, if a coach was supposed to go to the Olympics, they would delay the decision until after the Olympics, allow them to go. So the abusive coach is still going. So that movement really, that was a, a grassroots movement. Athletes coming forward, and it hasn't slowed down. And the athletes have been demanding change, have been, as I mentioned earlier, they've been called to testify mm -hmm. at parliamentary hearings, at the status of women, at the Heritage Committee, all are on the record. Just last month, the first committee came out with a recommendation. One of the recommendations was Recommendation 14, which called for a national inquiry. Now we're waiting for the Heritage Committee to come out with their report. Hopefully that will be in September. And we don't see why the same outcomes won't be there. Um, and we hope in September, we will see the calls from the federal government to call for this national inquiry. And the interesting thing that it all started about abuse. So it was about abuse happening in sport. And then when the athletes started to see all of the things, they realized, okay, abuse is happening in sport, but it's not a sport issue. It's a human rights issue just because it's happening in sport doesn't mean it's a sport issue and sport can't self-regulate so they want to take it out of sport and then they started to see the power imbalances they started to see the cover-ups they started to see the confidentiality that was the non-disclosure agreements that were being signed people couldn't speak out and all these whistleblowers come forward i'm on a non-disclosure agreement but i'm happy to tell you as long as you keep it confidential so you have this army of survivors which is an organization itself an army of survivors that have come forward to fight for every other athlete in the country. And not just for Canada, but hopefully Canada would take a lead in understanding the root and the rod of the problems, where the system has failed, where has it worked, 
and come out of the chute as a leading country that has shown the world how sport could be run, how safe sport should be run, and how athletes are put first in an environment where without athletes, nothing happens. If a CEO goes, the organization is still going to run, but athletes are the ones really are the core. And if we don't start listening to them and, and creating a safer space, then I think we're in trouble. And a model, we talk about a holistic view, is the Norwegian. Norwegians have a whole like, the idea of play. Let kids play. Let them skate. Let them enjoy it. And the, the, the talented ones will come through the system healthier, better balanced, and leave sport the same way. Yes, it gets more competitive and there's as they get older, but let's focus on the joy of sport as a young age. And the Aspen Institute has a great paper on how sport should be run. So there are things out there, but it's time for us to really take, take a step back and say, what is sport? Let's take the sport of ice hockey in Canada. You have thousands, thousands, and thousands, and thousands of people playing hockey. 0.004% make it to the NHL. So let's, let's enjoy the sport. Let's keep it safe. And that's what one of the things we've advocated for is transparency, openness, and enjoyment. Keep pushing that. I think we'll have a totally different environment and, and sport will be more acceptable by many. Right. And that, I think that framework makes so much sense in tying it into a broader human rights framework as well, because it's so often we see that athletes are treated as a commodity. I think in skating, we see this especially because often the top athletes are so young and their careers can be so short. And that's, you know, both a symptom and a cause of the problem at the same time, but that the idea is that, well, the athletes may come and go, but the system stays. And that's so much the opposite of thinking about the system existing to serve the athlete. Yeah, no, without question, you're bang on. And as you said, we always say you're humans first, athletes second. We pushed and worked with athlete bodies and the IOC has done a little bit of work developing and implementing human rights framework into the Olympic Charter, which is crucially important. And every sport should be, human rights should be driving every decision. In the, in the Charter of Human Rights, you have the right to fair and equitable remedy. We don't see that in the sport. You have the right to organize. We don't see that in the sport. So all of the things that we believe the average citizen should have or does have in most countries, you should have it in sport. Sport builds itself on this idea that put your kids into sport and they'll be better people. They'll be away from trouble. They'll be off the streets. They will be more holistic and all of the ideas that we've created and Sharon Stoll in the US did a, a research study and I may be wrong in a couple of things but I've got the gist of it she had taken grade six students athlete and non-athlete and measured their moral compass and their decision making um, after six years she's brought those same people back and looked at the athlete and the non-athlete who had the stronger moral reasoning and, the, and better ethics was the non-athlete. The athletes eroded their, their ethical standards because sport teaches us that it's okay to bend the rules to get, to get an edge. It's okay to, to wear something different to get the edge. So it, it creates this culture that if you want the competitive edge, you can cheat a little bit and it's acceptable and you're actually seen as a better athlete. So it's a whole discussion on how we improve sport. But from our perspective, as I said, we're all about equal rights, collective bargaining, making sure there's a balance of power moving forward. We talked a little bit about athlete 
commissions and sort of the ways that representation inside of the system does not produce the same as athlete representation that is independent. But could you speak a little bit more about that and why athlete representatives are not sufficient? So I'm going to start with a caveat. This is not a hit uh, to individual athletes sitting on those commissions. So the last thing we want to do is criticize individual athletes. But we will criticize is the organizations that have created the structure that suck athletes in and make them complicit. Let me give you the example. The International Olympic Committee has an athlete commission. When they are voted at the Olympic or Paralympic winter or summer games in, some are voted in, some are appointed by the president. And I think it's almost a 50-50 appointment versus appointment. One is when they come in, they are required to sign the Olympic oath. And when you sign the Olympic oath, the Olympic oath says you must defend and support all decisions of the IOC. So how can you represent athletes when you're told you have to represent the visions of the IOC? And athletes that are voted onto the commission, let's say at the Olympic Games, they don't go back to their constituencies of 10,000 athletes at the Summer Olympics to go back and say, listen, we're looking, passing a rule on this, what do you think? They don't do that. And not only do they not do that, but speaking with athletes that have been on these commissions, some that have resigned from the commissions, when you start to speak up, you find yourself pushed aside, cast aside, and really not included. So they're looking for a structure to justify and support what their decisions are. When I say they're the IOC, and the IOC has replicated that globally. So it's at the National Olympic Committees, it's at the International Federations, for the most part. I mean, there obviously there are some structures that are outliers and you have athletes that are, are strong and independent. You know, I'll give you an example of the World Anti-Doping Agency Athlete Commission, what it was led by Becky Scott. But that was an individual that said, I'm not putting up with this. I'm speaking up. And the committee got behind her and they all stood up and they weren't afraid. But retribution is real. So that's the structure they built it in. And to go a little bit further to give everyone an idea of how this potentially happens is so an athlete, you sign the Olympic oath, you have to support the IOC decision. One of the leading senior members of the IOC, Richard Pound, he spoke up in Pyeongchang against the IOC on their position on Russia because of the statewide institutionalized doping. And he was very vocal against the IOC decisions. And Richard Pound said this himself, so this is not anecdotal. He was pushed off of marketing commission. He was pushed off commissions that he was involved with. He was cast aside eventually came back because he started the total line. This most senior member of the IOC is being treated that way for speaking up and speaking their opinion. What message does that send to every athlete who has zero power? It sends a message that, listen, it's a nice club, it's good benefits, enjoy it, do your eight years and uh, go on and hopefully you get a consulting job. So it's, it's a structure that has been created by the sports that really sets athletes up for failure. And it's it's a travesty, quite frank. Mm-hmm. So within the ISU, there are there's an athletes commission, and then there's one representative from that commission that sits on the decision-making council. And I don't think I have ever, I may be you know, doing a disservice here, but I don't think I have ever seen those athletes speak publicly. Even speaking publicly to represent the ISU's position, it's very interesting that it is an entirely behind the scenes role and how those work. 
I also do know of some athletes in, you know, in various places on the technical committees and in different spaces who are, you know, doing a lot of work and advocating for their positions within those spaces, but that has more to do with their own ability to be, to be strong advocates and organizers as individuals than it does with their position. But when you see, for example, the ice dancer, Evan Bates, who is one of the athletes who doesn't have an Olympic medal because of the delays, has been speaking out through what the efforts organized by the U.S. Figure Skating Association, but he's also a member of the Athletes Commission. And so he may be doing that advocacy behind the scenes, but it is nothing of that is showing up through those international spaces. So it's just, it's interesting to see in what limited ways it happens. And that athlete advocacy that has been happening is at the behest of the National Federation, not in be very well supported by those athletes as individuals, but it's not being organized by them independently. So and just, you know, trying to look at these few examples that we have and poking at it, you start to see all of those patterns that you're talking about show up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to circle back to the some of the questions around funding and athlete compensation. And how do you think in a fairer system, a system that had collective bargaining, for example, what could funding structures for Olympic athletes look like? So I think we need to step back a little bit because the first thing that needs to happen is agreement of transparency. Where the money's being spent, how much is being spent or what it's being spent for. If you do a deep dive into international federations accounts, national Olympic committees accounts, even the IOC to some degree, there was a lack of transparency on where that money's going and what it's being used for. I know if I was running an organization and I gave you $10 million as a grant, I want to know where it's going. I want to know what my return on my investment is. That's going to hand $10 million over to you and say, have fun, create your own skating. So that, that's where that discussion can't even start what compensation looks like until there's a transparent and open books. And that's where you see in a lot of the leagues is you start that discussion. I think the starting point is having equal representation at the table to start that discussion. And when I say equal representation, it's not 50-50. Not 50% of the athletes say, you're selected, Jason selected, Jane is selected. No, no. We want collective representation where athletes mm -hmm. are sitting in a room, they discuss what they want, they discuss what they need, and then they can go with their representative and they can go themselves. That fight and not fight, but advocate for what they believe is important. And that first thing is an equal say. So where's that money going and how is it going and why are we spending it here? And then you can start looking at, okay, we, we can redistribute money, or maybe we can't, but maybe we can at least have a say in where the allocation is going. So I think that's the first step is correcting that power imbalance, looking at the current expenditures and, and spend of the organizations and saying, okay, there's room for compensation here and what it looks like and how it should look. That would prejudge something that I would not want to prejudge. I know there's research happening right now. We're doing research on what collective bargaining could look like. The, they need to come to the table. That's the first thing, to, to be transparent. And once we have that, I think we can have that discussion on what it looks like. Look, the IOC could easily pay every athlete that goes to the Olympic Games $25,000, easily. And $25,000 to an athlete that can barely pay the rent, um, that has to rely on mom and dad or guardian's support or GoFundMe pages, scraping at the bottom of the barrel to try to get by um, that would mean a lot to them 
those are the things that need to be discussed in the future, and, mm -hmm. and it has to trickle down. And I don't say that anecdotally. We have done a research, it's on our website, on athlete welfare compensation and rights, I think it was. And the survey is pretty evident that athletes are a hard time getting by. But the, the most interesting part of that research is what we did was we asked consent for any athlete that provided additional comments, whether you would like them published or not. And every single one of them, I think, said it, maybe one didn't said yes, publish them. And that's one of the most interesting things is reading what the athletes say about how they're living and how difficult it is and how they're barely getting by and who's benefiting. And the facade that the IOC puts out or the IPC, I'd say more the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, that once you become Olympian, you're set for life. That's a load of crap. You're not set for life. <laughs> You have to be a multi-medalist with star power and ticking all the right boxes to be that. Right country and the right sport and all Correct. those things. Correct. Yeah. The right smile and all of the things, the right PR campaign and to be able to be that person. Yeah. It, it doesn't come just because you win an Olympic gold medal. I mean, there's Olympic gold medalists that are working just normal jobs. I and mean, that could be in a shoe store. That could be at a grocery store. It could be at an insurance company, but they're not driving Ferraris. and that's one of the things, not that they're expected to drive Ferraris, but one of the things when I do talks every now and then is I ask the audience, you know, how wealthy do you think athletes are at the Olympics? Like, oh, they're rich and famous. So well, they're not actually. They can barely get by. You probably have more money than they do on a daily basis. And not only that, the difference between you and them is they've sacrificed 15 years of their life, maybe even 20. You have gone, whether you go to school or you've started your career earlier, they put on everything on hold and are not making a dime. Or if they are, it's very little. So they're starting 15, 20 years behind you and have to start their lives. Imagine having to start your life at 40 years old. So we build no protections. We build no life after sport. And I think those are the things where all those discussions need to happen. If we're going to commit, countries are going to commit to using this as geopolitical force. How do we ensure that these athletes are protected in terms of compensation, health insurance, well-being, support, all of the things that if you're an employee-employee relationship, you tend to get. Yeah. And how much of this is still based around the idea that Olympic athletes are amateurs? I know that there's been various holes poked in that over the years, and there's certainly professional athletes that are going to the Olympics, but do you still see that used as part of the argument against having fair compensation? I don't think they use it as an argument, but I think it's um the general population sees an Olympic and a Paralympian as an amateur, except for, you know, the basketball players, the hockey players, the, you know, the professional leagues that come and play sport at the Olympics. But generally speaking, they say, oh, they're, they're reaching their goals to be Olympian and they've achieved that. and That's amazing. I think that's the surface level. I'm not sure the IOC anymore promotes that this is all amateurism because at one point, as you well know is athletes could not earn a penny and if they earned a penny they're no longer qualified now they can it's not easy but they can go get sponsorships they can go raise money they can do whatever they want but it's, it's a hard ask and it's a hard it's so hard to get sponsors uh, only select few get them so the amateurism i think is a undertone that people see but they know it's not reality anymore finally i wanted to ask you a little bit more about the work you're doing around the continuing bans on 
Russian and Belarusian athletes participating in the Olympics and other international sport. Um, know that that's something that global athletes been very vocal about. And you mentioned working with Ukrainian athletes, but um, could you tell us a little bit more about overall where the status of that is? Figure skating made the decision to continue the ban for another year, but we also saw that Russian coaches, Russian officials are still going to the meetings. There are certainly holes in that ban. It all started when just after the, the Winter Olympics in Beijing, when Russia invaded Ukraine with Belarus and the Ukrainian athletes. The interesting thing is the Ukrainian athletes and the Belarusian athletes reached out to us calling for Russia and Belarus to be banned. On that letter that was signed, you know, you'd have to look at the details, but it's there on that letter, the original letter that was released in February 2022, is you had the chair of the Russian Athlete Commission and her teammates sign it as well to ban Russia and Belarus. That's kind of the wave we went. And then when we released that first letter, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Olympians and Paralympians sign on to the letter calling for Russia and Belarus to be banned. And you know, the IOC has something they call the Olympic truce. And the Olympic truce is that everyone sees war during the two, two weeks or two and a half week period of the Olympic Games. That to me and that to us is a facade. Peace is not about two and a half weeks. Peace is about 365 day commitment. And to see what Russia and Belarus are doing to the Ukrainian population, to 450 facilities destroyed, sport facilities, hundreds of athletes being killed, 40,000 athletes being displaced. And none of that falls in with the Olympic values of sport. And as a result, we've had, you know, athletes Germany, we've had fencers from around the world, we've had, you name it. I mean, athletes saying we need to ensure that Russia is not going because every athlete coming from Russia is supported by the state. And Vladimir Putin and Lukashenko we use every ounce of their athletes' victories to do two things. One, talk about how great Russia or Belarus is, and their participation in the events will indicate that this is a Western conspiracy because we're allowed to compete in these events. So everything is fine. And what we're doing, the war we're raging and the invasion in Ukraine is justified because they use sport as a geopolitical tool They've used it in Sochi. I mean, you just look back at not isolate incident. If, if we didn't think sport was that important to Russia, why would Russia and Sochi hire the Secret Service, involve Vladimir Putin right from the top, develop a plan on how to swap every Russian athlete sample with clean urine through mouse holes led by the Secret Service, the FSB, and swap it out for clean urine so they could win the Olympic Games? I mean, of course it's important to them. And by allowing them back into the international community, they are turning a blind eye to the atrocities that are happening. And I'm sorry, I mean, we are an athlete organization. It's very hard for us to say we want to see athletes banned, but it's a small price to pay for Russian and Belarusian athletes to sit out when we see what's happening to Ukrainian athletes. It's a small price to pay. And the last thing is the Olympics is about nationalism. So you represent your country, your, your passport determines where you go. So you are a state representative when you go there. And to see what will happen if they do allow Russian and Belarusian athletes in Paris, I think it'll be very interesting. I think we'll see the exact same thing we saw in Beijing 
where there was an uprising in the village, there was tension in the village, and that forced the IPC to ban Russia and Belarus on the eve of the opening ceremonies. If the IOC doesn't show leadership, I think we may see the same thing. And that's a detriment to everyone else. So we're having two countries being given a free pass and everyone else has to suffer. So that's why we listen to the athletes. And listen, it's not a global, not everybody's on the same page on this. You know, you have countries that have alliances with Russia that are a very different opinion, and those athletes aren't allowed to speak up anyhow. But generally speaking, the large countries we're working with, the governments, we just saw Council of Europe pass a resolution that Russia and Belarus should be banned. We saw a release yesterday from the MINEPS meeting from 40 countries that they should be banned. So there's definitely a lot of support to athletes that are calling for this. And we hope we see brave leadership from the IOC, but it, it appears that the Russian authorities have something with the IOC that no one understands. And yes, Russia puts a lot of money in the sport, but it's time to show leadership. Yeah, it's been very damaging, I would say, to the overall status of the Olympics to see the top leadership taking a stance um, and using Olympic values to defend Russian participation. It, that's been very hard to see, and it's yet another there have been all kinds of different corruption scandals and human rights abuses around the hosting and all of those pieces of the Olympics that then casts a lot of doubt on the Olympic movement. You know, like you said, the transparency is so important because I don't think that they've shown that there can be trust without it. Which brings us full circle, right? I think you're bang on when you say there's a brand that's being severely tarnished where people are losing interest. And maybe, just maybe, we go full circle here where the IOC is going to realize they need their number one stakeholder to support and promote and to be a partner to bring it back to this golden look of what the Olympics and Paralympics could be. I mean, the Paralympics is by default sucked in by the IOC because of the funding. If I was running the Paralympics, I would break away from the IOC because I think they've got a better brand. They've taken a stronger moral compass on, on situation and issues. Again, no organization is perfect, but they have certainly done a lot better. So maybe full circle will come when they realize people aren't coming to watch, people aren't tuning in, people are disgusted at what they're seeing, that they'll realize they need to revive and create a new brand that, and the rings are the rings, but it's just the rings. And they know that two weeks or two and a half weeks every year, people have amnesia because they get start watching an American athlete, American figure skater or Canadian figure skater or whatever it may be. And they kind of forget about all the stuff. And, you know, there's a name for that. It's called sport washing. That's just kind of what happens. They take advantage of two and a half weeks to make sure everyone forgets about all the issues around it and they move on. It didn't work in Beijing when they were hosting the games in Beijing with all the crimes against humanity that were happening uh, or is still happening in China. Um, the way the athletes were being treated, the way they treated Pyong Shui, the tennis player who they made disappear. So all these things... Let's hope it comes full circle. We are certainly going to continue to push for change. We're going to continue to work with athletes and try to maintain that authentic grassroots bottom-up approach for change. If we start losing that, I think we start losing our position and our place where we are right now. Yeah, thinking about with Beijing and then tying it back to Sochi is so important. And with the way that the ISU has been responding, it's great that the ban continues. And it was very interesting talking to other fans and people who follow the sport beyond the Olympic year to say that 
it was one of the most enjoyable seasons that we've had in a long time because there wasn't this sort of suspicion in the back of your mind that, yes, those Russian skaters are very talented and great, but are they maybe cheating? And even if they're not, you know that they're coming from very abusive training and that you're going to see a new one again next year. You know, all of these things that have made the sport in a lot of ways less interesting um, for, as for the spectators and certainly a worse place for most of the athletes. And that part of the conversation, the doping, the abuse, none of that has connected into the statements that the ISU has made. They've been purely about the war, which is, you know, where that initial piece came from, but it's, it's only telling part of that story. And so I do hope once the Court for Arbitration and Sport comes back around with the decision for Valieva case, that maybe there will be a, an opening to have more of that conversation, to have more of the conversation while the Russians aren't in the room. But I, I want to be hopeful about it. But so far, nothing that's happened makes me think that there isn't still influence behind the scenes. Yeah, and I think that's a whole other episode yeah. on <laughs> current state of, of global anti-doping programs and the court of arbitration of sport. Yeah. It's another two hours. Well, thank you so much, Rob. This has been a really interesting conversation. All of the conversation around athlete power and athlete voice is so connected to everything else that I've been trying to talk about with this podcast and just so many of the conversations have been leading to that space. So it's great to focus on that. And I'm sure that we will continue to circle back around to that point, because I do think that there's only going to be more drive for athletes to speak out. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. Thanks again to Rob for sharing his time and the work of Global Athlete. I hope this episode has given you a taste of what is possible when athletes organize and use their voices to push for a fairer sport. You can follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Kohler2, that's R-O-B-K-O-E-H-L-E-R-2, and Global Athlete at Global Athlete. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. If you appreciate this podcast, you can also support my work with the tip jar at futureoffigureskating.pinecast.co. Remember to subscribe and review on whatever platform you use and share the future of figure skating with your friends.